It is a joy to get to gather under God's word with you. And if you have your Bible, please turn with me to the book of Ruth. We are continuing our Advent study. And as a reminder, Advent means coming or arrival. And so it's a season that in the midst of all the busyness that can accompany Christmas time, for us to pause and to really reflect on the first advent of Christ while also longing for his return. And so advent always carries with it this kind of low-grade ache, this longing for Christ. They were longing for the Messiah to come, and their hope was in him, and then Jesus has come. We can reflect and worship on all that he accomplished at the cross and in his resurrection And now we can, with the same spirit, long for his return, long for a greater expression of his life in our lives, which is what we're going to get to this morning. We talked about this last week. Ruth may seem like a strange book to study for Advent. It's not one of the Gospels, but in a very real way, it serves as a backstory to the coming of Christ in that. Uh, it mirrors the coming of Christ in God moving through really ordinary means in the town of Bethlehem to bring about Israel's greatest king. That's what Ruth is all about, and it is what the Christmas story is all about. God working in history and moving with miraculous power to bring about redemption for his people through the son of David that was to come. So last week we talked about chapter 1 and how uh, Naomi and her family left Bethlehem. She left with a husband and sons and um, they fled the land of promise in search of bread and her husband dies and her sons die and she is left seemingly empty and bitter and without hope. And we talked about how God was at work the whole time and how he's at work in our lives in the midst of seasons that seem hopeless and dark. And then we ended last week with this glimmer of hope that they were returning to Bethlehem at the beginning of the barley harvest, that God had visited his people. And so with that in view, please rise in honor of the reading of God's word. We will begin in chapter 2. Verse 1. Now Naomi had a relative of her husband's, a worthy man of the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. And Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, Let me go to the field and glean among the ears of grain after him in whose sight I shall find favor. And she said to her, Go, my daughter. So she set out. And went and gleaned in the field after the reapers. And she happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz, who was of the clan of Elimelech. And behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem. And he said to the reapers, The Lord be with you. And they answered, The Lord bless you. Then Boaz said to his young man who was in charge of the reapers, Whose young woman is this? And the servant who was in charge of the reapers answered, She is the young Moabite woman who came back with Naomi from the country of Moab. She said, please let me glean after among the sheaves after the reapers. So she came and she has continued from early morning until now, except for a short rest. Then Boaz said to Ruth, now listen, my daughter, do not go glean in another field or leave this one, but keep close to my young women. Let your eyes be on the field that they are reaping and go after them. Have I not charged the young men not to touch you? And when you are thirsty, go to the vessels and drink what the young men have drawn. And she fell on her face, bowing to the ground and said to him, Why have I found favor in your eyes that you should take notice of me since I am a foreigner? But Boaz answered her, All that you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband has been fully told to me how you have left your father and mother and your native land and came to a people that you did not know before. The Lord repay you for what you have done. A full reward be given to you by the Lord, the God of Israel, 
under whose wings you have come to take refuge. Then she said, I have found favor in your eyes, my Lord, for you have comforted me and spoken kindly to your servant, though I am not one of your servants. And at mealtime, Boaz said to her, come here and eat some bread and dip your morsel in the wine. So she sat beside the reapers and he passed to her roasted grain. And she ate until she was satisfied and she had some left over. When she rose to glean, Boaz instructed his young men, saying, Let her glean even among the sheaves, and do not reproach her. And also, pull out some from the bundles for her, and leave it for her to glean, and do not rebuke her. So she gleaned in the field until evening. Then she beat out what she had gleaned, and it was about an ephah of barley. She took it up and went into the city. Her mother-in-law saw what she had gleaned, She also brought out and gave to her what food she had left over after being satisfied. And her mother-in-law said to her, Where did you glean today? And where have you worked? Blessed be the man who took notice of you. So she told her mother-in-law with whom she had worked and said, The man's name with whom I work today is Boaz. Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, May he be blessed by the Lord, whose kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. Naomi also said to her, The man is a close relative of ours, one of our redeemers. And Ruth, the Moabite, said, Besides, he said to me, You shall keep close by my young men until they have finished all my harvest. And Naomi said to Ruth, her daughter-in-law, It is good, my daughter, that you go out with his young women, lest in another field you be assaulted. So she kept close to the young woman of Boaz, gleaning until the end of the barley and wheat harvests. And she lived with her mother-in-law. Let's pray. Father, we praise you for your good word. We ask just as Ruth gleaned from among the harvest that we would glean from your word this morning. That you would leave us bundles of truth to gather up and that we would eat and be satisfied even having some left over to share. Lord, would you come and speak by your spirit to your servants who are listening. In Jesus' name, amen. You can be seated. Have you ever read an account of someone's life or a story that was so jarring, it was so impactful that it completely changed the way you thought about that thing you read? So my example from recent weeks, or it was just so challenging and inspiring to me. Kayla and I are reading a biography um, that admittedly, we've been slow to read it because we have to read it out loud and it usually comes up when I'm really tired. So then I'm like, I always don't want to read it. And then we read it and I'm always really blessed by it. And in this story, there was this lady from uh, Slovenia whose son just all of a sudden became mute and he couldn't speak. And they took him to doctors, and the doctors couldn't do anything. And they were just living with the frustration with it until one day he was trying to communicate, and he was in tears, and she was growing seemingly frustrated, and she just cries out to the Lord, and she reaches out and takes hold of his tongue and says, in Jesus' name, be loosed and be opened. And then, just completely calmly, he spoke very clearly and said, Mommy, will you read me a Bible story? (laughs) And I read that, like I'm kind of reading along sleepily, and I read that, and I'm like, whoa, this challenges my prayer life in a huge way, and how I've been approaching faith in a huge way. This is the power of biography and stories, is that it has the power of taking what you thought you knew about some truth or some facet about God's character that you appreciated on paper and it brings it into real life technicolor and puts skin and bones on it and says, this is what this can look like. And that's my prayer for us this morning as we come to this story of Ruth and Boaz. There's a lot of really ordinary love and grace that happen in this story and yet they are supernaturally used by God. And if we let them their example will elevate our vision of what love is, what it can look like in our daily experience if we yield to the strength of Christ in us. So we already mentioned in a recap from chapter one, um, 
Naomi has come back with a glimmer of hope. The narrative gives us a glimmer of hope. Naomi doesn't. She feels she's just come back completely empty and she's bitter. But we know that God in his mercy has visited his people. And chapter 2 continues in this kind of same hopeful tone in introducing us to Boaz, who is going to be a glorious type of Christ for us this morning. And we're going to get to him. But before we do, I want to start with Ruth and what we learn of her in this chapter, because Ruth, in a real way, gives us one of these vivid portraits of love, of what love looks like. And I don't know if you heard this while we were reading, but there's a real emphasis in this chapter on Ruth being a foreigner, being a Moabite. She references it. Boaz's workers reference it. And then if that wasn't enough, the narrator references it. And I think all of it is meant to uh, call our attention to her vulnerability. In Israelite society, she would have been a complete outcast. She wasn't allowed to enter the presence of God with the people of God. And um, she was a Gentile from among the nations. And um, we'll get to it in a bit. You can see this was a, a dangerous thing for her. In terms of Israel's social ladder, the king would be at the very top, or the judge in this case would be at the very top, and she as a female foreigner servant would be at the very bottom with no rights and no protections. And on top of that, she's a widow. So it highlights her low standing in order to highlight for us how astounding it is that it's, it's this woman who has faith in Israel's God. It's this woman who's providing for her mother-in-law like she is, and it's this woman to whom Boaz shows such incredible kindness. And it's to highlight, this is not an ordinary grace that we see in this chapter from Boaz. So if I had to capture Ruth's character and her actions in one phrase in this chapter, it would be Paul's phrase that he uses in Galatians of faith working through love. And I want you to observe a couple things with me about Ruth's love from this chapter. First, her love is a humble and proactive love. Remember, this is Naomi left completely without husband or sons, and Ruth becomes like a son to Naomi. The chapter opens with Ruth the Moabite saying to her mother-in-law, let me go to the field and glean among the ears of grain after him in whose sight I shall find favor. So, you can see already right here that this is a love that springs forth from faith. She is asking Naomi to go and glean in the fields of favor that she knows and she's confident that she will receive from God. So they don't know. They haven't been called by somebody to say, hey, come glean in this field. She just recognizes their need and their hunger, and she is stepping in not to be served but to serve and to offer up her life for Naomi's provision and I want to speak to the kids in the room so if you're a kid in the room raise your hand some of the adults probably should be raising their hands but um, this happens at my house I'm not going to tell you uh, among who who says this I see you William um, but a lot of times when we think about serving people or acting uh, for other people's good, we, we want to do what's fair. Does anybody ever in your house talk about what's fair? Like, well, I already did this chore and so-and-so didn't do this yet, right? And kids, you can imagine how easy it would be for Naomi and Ruth in their situation for Ruth to be thinking about what's fair, right? But notice in the text, she doesn't say, Hey, mom, let's go work in the fields together. She says, I'll go, and I'll take responsibility for our family, and I'm going to go serve. And you know what, kids? She served all day long, and she worked so hard while her mother-in-law sat at home. Now, we don't know if Naomi was aged, and that's why she couldn't go out and work, but this was a humble and proactive love. She wasn't waiting for provision to come to them. She was willing to go out and to do what love required with humility for the sake of her mother-in-law. And 
her love is a very courageous love. I don't know if you picked up on this when we read, but there was need for Boaz's protection that we're going to come to. But whether it's at the beginning of the text where we find out that she's going out and working among the reapers and the chapter ends with, it's a really good thing that you found protection there lest you go work in another field and you be assaulted. Remember that this is during the time of the judges when every man is doing what is right in their own eyes. There is moral bankruptcy. And so it was clearly not a strange instance for a woman to be vulnerable working by herself in the fields. So it's important for us to remember that courage does not mean fearless. Courage means that you are taking up responsibility in the midst of what you fear, and you're doing it anyways. So Ruth demonstrates this courageous love. This is her essentially going and begging on the streets of New York City in a really dangerous area of town alone as a woman at night. That's, that's the setting. And she's willing to go do it because she's taking responsibility for her mother-in-law who has no husband or sons to provide for her. She is acting with a courageous love. And we see that Ruth's love is an industrious love. It's a hardworking love. The foreman, when Boaz asks about Ruth, says she has continued from early morning until now except for a short rest. Meaning, now, there's differences of opinion of what this could mean. He's either saying, look, she came and asked to glean among the reapers and I didn't know what to tell her and she has stayed here all day waiting for your answer and she has not left. So it's either this insistent kind of, I'm not leaving until I get an answer or she's been in the fields actually working all day. But regardless of what this phrase means, we know later that after she's gathered up all of her hard work from the day, she beats it out herself and gathers grain from among the sheaves and an ephah of barley is like almost 30 pounds. So this is a miraculous haul from God's provision through Boaz, but she by all appearances, has gathered all of this by herself, working all day by the sweat of her brow for the sake of her mother-in-law. And it's, her love is a beautiful example to us that when love requires it of us, there's no task that we're above. And love is not lazy. Love doesn't see a need and go so far but no further. Love works hard because that's what's required of us. But what we need to ask ourselves is, well, what's the source of all of her love? Is, is, Nate, is Ruth just a good example for us in love in and of itself? Or is there a deeper cause and reason behind her love for her mother-in-law? And we see the answer to that in verses 11 and 12. This is Boaz speaking of Ruth. And he says, all that you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband has been fully told to me how you left your father and your mother and your native land and came to a people that you did not know before. The Lord repay you for what you have done and a full reward be given to you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. So this is Boaz's description of Ruth, that she's come to take refuge under the wings of God. And that is imagery of God that is not strange to the scripture. It is metaphor. So don't leave here thinking that God has actual wings. But this picture of like a mother bird gathering in her chicks and hiding them under the shelter of her wings from the elements is a picture of God being the refuge of his people. It's the same imagery as in Psalm 91. He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. I will say to the Lord, my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust. So taking refuge in God and trusting in God are the same thing. Do you see that? So verse four of Psalm 91 says, he will cover you with his pinions, that's feathers, and under his wings you will find refuge. His faithfulness is a shield and buckler. So 
Ruth is dwelling in the shelter of the Most High as she is trusting in Israel's God as her refuge and she is being protected by the faithfulness of God. And Boaz knew it. And the way that he knew it was by the way that her faith was worked out in love. Her faith had actual hands and feet to it. So he says, all that you've done for your mother-in-law has been told to me. And the connection that he drew is, look at how she's loving her mother-in-law. Look at how it says she left her father and mother's house, meaning she forewent marriage in order to attach herself to her mother-in-law. And like Abraham, the believer, she set out from her homeland, not knowing where she was going, not knowing what was ahead of her. All of it was a demonstration of her faith in God. And the narrator specifically tying Ruth's faith to the faith of Abraham to say, this is a real believer. She's placing her trust in Israel's God, just like Abraham, the father of faith, has. And this is the reason why she has loved the way that she has. But she loved in a way that Boaz could see from the fruit of her life, oh, this woman's come to take refuge under the wings of the God of Israel. And we see that God's blessing came to her in the way of obedience. So you need to see this. Boaz is saying uh, that may a full reward be given to you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. So he's not saying, may the Lord pay you back for all that you have done to him. He's saying, you have come to take refuge in God. And you have come to live underneath the blessing of God. And may God shower you with blessing because of all that you've done that's a fruit of faith as one of his children. So as she honored God and walked in obedience to him, verse 3 uses this language that she just so happened to walk into the field of Boaz. And it's the same kind of providence that we saw in chapter 1 last week. He, he, the narrator is using language that is purposefully exaggerative. It's, it's like um, saying, well, she just very luckily came to the field of Boaz. As to highlight to us, God is at work. The same God who has visited his people with a harvest and the same God whose invisible hand we saw moving the whole time and emptying Naomi and now bringing her back here. The same God is at work here. She set out to go find favor somewhere in somebody's field. And wouldn't you know it, she just happened to come to the field of Boaz, a relative of Naomi, who is going to play a huge role in the story. So if in Ruth we see this portrait of love, and faith working through love. We see in Boaz a faith that works through love as well, but more specifically, we see Boaz as a strong and a gracious refuge. So next week, we're going to look at Boaz as our redeemer. I made a note at the top of my notes, do not steal Dave's message from next week. So I'm doing my best not to jump ahead. But this week, we see Boaz not just as a redeemer, but as our, like the refuge himself. And we're going to see all these ways in which he is a type of the Christ to come. But look at verse one. The text says, Now Naomi had a relative of her husband's, a worthy man of the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. So the first thing that we learn about Boaz is that he is a relative of Naomi's. The text says that he's of the clan of Elimelech, which is going to be important later, but see previous note about not stealing Dave's message. So he's part of their family and eligible for a very important role. Um, Hebrew tradition said that uh, Boaz's dad and Elimelech were brothers. So this is likely Elimelech's nephew. And we know from chapter four that he's the son of Salmon and Rahab. So the same Rahab, who hid the Israelite spies as they were spying out the land of Jericho is Boaz's mother. So it's kind of bringing it all together for us. And his name means in him is strength. And that's exactly what we see in this chapter. He's described in verse one as 
a worthy man. And that language is packed full of meaning. It can mean that he's wealthy or that he's a man of might and valor and integrity or that he has this great godly character. And here with Boaz, it probably means all of it, right? He's this man of influence and he's got this weight to his character, to his life. This is a weighty man. And we see from verse 4, I think this is included so that you can see that in a time when everyone's doing what's right in their own eyes and nobody fears God and nobody honors God, we get this little window into how Boaz treats his employees and what a normal greeting is for Boaz among his workers. And so he shows up in the fields from Bethlehem and he says, the Lord be with you and with our harvest. And their response is, the Lord bless you. And I think all of it's just a further window into this is a godly, influential, God-fearing man who has a genuine fear of God and genuine piety. And we are going to see in this chapter how he uses his strength, not just for his own sake, but how he pours out his strength for Ruth's sake, just like Ruth did for Naomi. So don't miss this. In chapter 1, we began with a famine and the death of frail men who dishonored God. Remember, their names meant sickness and weakness. And here, chapter 2 begins with a harvest and the hope of a man in whom is strength. And we see two ways specifically in this chapter that Boaz serves as a refuge for Ruth. The first is in that he offers protection for her. So we see this in, you can look at verse 8 and 9, 21 and 22. He says, Ruth, I want you to keep close to my young women. He says, have I not charged the young men not to touch you? We later see him tell them, don't, don't embarrass her, don't rebuke her to his workers. And then Ruth later says, oh, it's such a good thing that you found Boaz's field to work in. And you need to go work in his field lest you go be assaulted in another field. So he provides protection for Ruth in a way that blows her away. Her response to his protection, to his generosity is, why would you show me such kindness? I'm a, I'm a Moabite. I'm a foreigner. I'm a nobody. I'm one of the enemies of God's people. And I've just in this very bottom rung of society and you are like this very well-respected mayor-like governor in Bethlehem, why would you be showing me such kindness? And his response is to say that he knows that she has come to take refuge under the wings of God. And so Boaz is in a sense recognizing she has come to God for protection And if God protects Ruth and receives her, then I am going to protect and to receive her. And he employs his strength in generous ways. There's there's no hint at this point in the story that this is a romantic story or that there's love or that he's attracted to her. This is Boaz showing incredible kindness to a foreign servant woman And it's a demonstration of him employing his strength to protect those who are, uh, who can't protect themselves. And it's a demonstration of great love in his strength. We also see him being Ruth's refuge in his provision for her. So I want to read to you just what the law required in Israel, because all of this language of gleaning among the sheaves is probably not going to make a lot of sense unless you understand these provisions from the law of God. In Leviticus 23, verse 22, God says, when you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap your field right up to its edge, nor shall you gather the gleanings after your harvest. You shall leave them for the poor and for the sojourner. I am the Lord, your God. So we read this a few weeks ago in Uh, our reading of the law, and we were confessing to the Lord how often we use all the margin of our lives right up to the edge. We use all of our time right up to the edge and don't leave any for anybody else. 
and we use our budgets right up to the edge and we don't leave margin to be able to give away and meet pressing needs. And so God makes this provision in the law. When you're harvesting your land, don't harvest all of it. Leave some of it for the poor and for the sojourner, which Ruth would qualify for both of those. And he calls them to the fear of God. I am the Lord your God. Do not dishonor me in using the all that I've given you for yourself. And Deuteronomy 24, I think, takes us a little bit further in verse 19. He says here, when you reap your harvest in your field and forget a sheaf in the field, you shall not go back to get it. It shall be for the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow, that the Lord your God may bless you in all the work of your hands. So before we move on from this, don't, let's not miss this. God calls us to fear him in all of our interactions with people. And he calls us to a generosity that recognizes that everything belongs to him. And he says, I will bless you. If, if you forget a whole sheaf, I mean, just imagine this. They're having to like cut these stalks and gather up all of these. It's, it's basically like baling hay. And it's a lot of work. And he says, you realize that you forgot one in the field. Don't go back and get it. Just leave it. And let it be provision for those in need. And I will bless you. You will not miss that bale of hay. If you give to somebody in Jesus' name, you're not going to miss it. He's going to bless you. And he's going to provide for you. So this is what the law required of Boaz, right? Uh, don't glean all the way to the edges. And if there's some left over, don't gather it all up. Let sojourners and widows come and glean among the sheaves. What we see in this story is Boaz going beyond the letter of the law, beyond what the law required of him, into a lavish grace and generosity. So he tells Ruth first, don't go to another field. Let your eyes be on my field. I want you to stay here. So rather than kind of a, a sojourner or a widow just coming through and being like, oh, just leave them. Like they'll just gather up a couple things and then they'll move on to another field. He tells her, I want you to stay in this field and I want you to gather from here. What's mine is yours. I want you to gather up what is left over. And he provides per protection in going with his reapers. But then he goes beyond that. And verse 14 says, at mealtime, Boaz said to her, come here and eat some bread and drip your dip your morsel in the wine. So she sat beside the reapers and he passed to her the roasted grain. I read a couple of um, helpful commentaries here this week that kind of, I think, really helped paint the scene. And this may be, you may think this example is a little bit cheesy, but I thought it was helpful from like all the movies that we've watched where we've seen like the outcast kid who's unpopular and nope, nobody will befriend him. And you see like the varsity athlete who's super popular. And that's essentially what's going on here is they're in the lunchroom and this is the outcast new kid who nobody wants to be around. And this is the star player, varsity player on the team going to her and saying, come sit with me. And then this language for passing her the grain is that he served her himself. And I read, I, we need to do some follow-up on this, but I want to pass it to you because I think it's very interesting. I read that this is only one of two times that a man is said to serve anyone like this in the Old Testament. The first being Abraham serving his angelic guests when they come to him at the Oaks of Mamre and right here in Boaz serving Ruth, a Moabite foreigner widow. He invites her near and he is serving her himself and he honors her, placing her not just among the gleaners who get what is left over, but among his hired workers. No longer gleaning from their accidental drops, but he tells his workers, I want you to leave some behind. I want you to purposely like go along and like get some that you've gathered and I want you to drop it for her. Don't embarrass her. Don't rebuke her. I want her. I want you to provide for her. Uh, on top of that, you see his provision. We may miss this in our initial reading, but when anyone would draw water for someone, there's kind of this social acceptability of all right, foreigners and servants draw water for Israelites, not Israelites for foreigners or servants. 
And the women drew water from men, but the men didn't really draw water for the women. And so here you have him flipping kind of propriety on its head for the sake of Ruth and saying, I want you to come enjoy the water that's been drawn by my men. So he's taking people that are at the highest place of the social ladder, and she's saying, I want them to serve you. I want to raise you up and provide for you. And the end of all of his generosity and Ruth's hard work was this ephah of barley, this 30-pound haul of grain that was equivalent to about a half month's wages in a day. So normally they would have taken in about one or two pounds in a day just by normal work. This is Boaz just purposefully creating piles for her to gather in so that she has almost a half month's worth of grain in one single day. And so the result of all of this is that Naomi is shocked when she comes home. You can hear the surprise in her voice where she's like, my daughter, where in the world did you work today? And who has shown you this kind of kindness and this kind of favor? So we see that Boaz's kindness and provision was not only for Ruth, but for Naomi as well. But I want to look with you now at Boaz as he casts kind of a long shadow to Christ. All right, so here are a lot of ways in which this Boaz, and even in this chapter, is like our Lord Jesus. And we know from the Emmaus Road, right, all Scripture is pointing ahead to him. So if Jesus is unpacking this story to his disciples on the Emmaus Road, what might he say? Well, first, like Christ, who was an eventual son of Boaz, Boaz's genealogy highlights that he's from the line of Judah, a son of Rahab, and that he's born in Bethlehem of the line of David. So here's these exact same lineage that are being highlighted in their genealogies. Boaz's name means in him is strength, pointing ahead to him who would be the strength of his people. In fact, in 1 Kings 7, when Solomon is building his temple, you can picture this huge vestibule at the front of the temple, and there's these two pillars that are holding it all up. One of the pillars named is Jachin. He was one of the offsprings of Judah as well, and his name means it will be established. The name of the other pillar that's holding up the whole house of God is the Boaz pillar in his strength. So you put the two together, and at the front of the house of God, written in these letters as a reminder to everybody who comes through, it will be established in his strength. Jesus is the one who will build his church in his strength. Ruth, eating from Boaz's compassion and being completely satisfied and having enough left over, points ahead and reminds us of Jesus who looked at the crowds with compassion and he fed them until 5,000 people on miracle bread were completely satisfied. And it says that there was enough left over for the disciples. And then I think this is incredibly striking. At Boaz's generous and sacrificial love, Naomi praises God and says that God has not forsaken his hesed. And that is this word that means covenant loving kindness. Well, we don't have a word in the English language that can really capture all that this means. His love, his grace, his mercy, his goodness, his covenant love, all wrapped up into one term. And she says, praise God, he has not abandoned this loving kindness or this mercy that he has promised to us, that he's remembered his, his said to both the living and to the dead. What I think is so striking is that the Septuagint uses a Greek word for mercy in the place of this word in this text. So the Septuagint is a reminder that it's the Greek translation of the Old Testament. It was written around 300 BC and Jesus quoted from the Septuagint. So it's a reliable translation of the Old Testament into Greek. And the Greek word that is used here, that Naomi says, praise God, he has not forgotten chesed. The word that's used for that is used in Luke chapter 1 for another time when God did not forget his loving kindness. When Mary sings this song in response to 
the angel revealing that God would visit her from on high and that she would conceive Christ in her womb. She says, God has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy, has said, as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. So God had not forgotten Naomi or Ruth and the way that he had not forgotten them is in giving them Boaz and he had not forgotten his promise to Abraham, his promise to us, and he showed that in giving us Christ. Jesus is the true strong man who redeems his people and under whose wings we have come to take refuge. In Matthew 23, Jesus uses this language as he weeps over Jerusalem and he says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how I often I would have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, but you were not willing. So Jesus is saying he has the wings. It's his wings in which we are to come and to take refuge in his strength. Like a strong man and a godly husband, Jesus is the protector and provider for his people. So just like Boaz demonstrates that he's the saving refuge in his provision and protection of Naomi and Ruth, so Jesus is our protector and provider. Those words are exactly what it means when Paul says that Jesus nourishes and cherishes his church by his word. So Jesus is the protector and the provider of his people. It's the Lord Jesus who in his love and in his righteous strength went to the cross in order to atone for our sin. His is the ultimate humble love, the ultimate proactive love, the ultimate courageous love that gives itself up and acts in strength for his people. We've been going through our Advent in our home, and one of my favorite instances that points to Christ in the Old Testament is Noah's Ark. The Ark is such a picture of Christ that all who enter in, I don't know what's happening, sorry. All who enter into Christ are saved from the wrath of God. And we enter into Christ like Noah and his family entered into the ark as we come to him by faith. And so Jesus truly is the refuge of his people that we enter into and we pass through the judgment of God and come safely into the new world. And so the question for us this morning, is how do we respond to Christ as the saving refuge of his people? We got f- five, last time I said five minutes and it was like seven minutes, so just give me five to eight minutes and we're done. How do we respond to Christ, the saving refuge of his people? The first way is if you have yet to repent and come to him for life, he calls to you this Christmas season that he came for you so that he by his cross could forgive you of his your sin and by his resurrection he could give you eternal life and so he calls to all the earth now that all might take refuge in him in isaiah 45 this is from the mouth of the lord jesus turn to me and be saved all the ends of the earth for i am god and there is no other by myself i have sworn From my mouth has gone out in righteousness, a word that shall not return. To me, every knee shall bow and every tongue shall swear allegiance. Only in the Lord, it shall be said of me, our righteousness and strength. To him shall shall come and be ashamed all who were incensed against him. In the Lord, all the offspring of Israel shall be justified and shall glory. So this is an invitation from the Lord Jesus to you this morning, that if you are outside of Christ, that there is a refuge in him where you can be forgiven of your sin and be brought into the safety of the righteousness of Christ. He says that he will give his righteousness to all who call on his name. So what it means that all the offspring of Israel will be justified. He will declare you innocent not on the basis of what you have done, but on the basis of his righteousness. And it is a free gift to all who come to him in faith. But for most of us, the response first, before we do anything with this text, is to worship him. To worship him. 
I've been having this phrase go through my mind, and it has been astounding in the midst of my weakness. In him is strength. And it has been like a balm just to meditate on that phrase all week. He is strong. He is righteous. He is rich in love. He is strong where I am weak. And his strength is mine. Psalm 59, verse 16 and 17, give us such a springboard to worship him for his strength and for his love in response to what we've seen this morning. Psalm 59, verse 16 and 17. Write it down and let it be your response to God in this. The psalmist is teaching us how should you respond when you hear about Jesus' love and his strength like this or when you see it on display. He says, I will sing of your strength and I will sing aloud of your steadfast love in the morning for you have been to me a fortress and a refuge in the day of my distress. Oh, my strength, I will sing praises to you. For you, O God, are my fortress, the God who shows me steadfast love. So in Christ, we have this. His love is our strength. It's not, we're not celebrating his strength to the exclusion of his love or his love to the exclusion of his strength that Jesus has demonstrated his righteousness and being tempted in every way that you are and he never sinned and he's able to come to your aid for mercy and help in time of need. He is strong for you, and he loves you. He invites you to come to him and to worship him. And then the main takeaway after we worship is for us to yield to Christ in us so that faith might work in love. We started by saying if we were going to summarize these actions of Ruth and Boaz, it would be faith that works through love. And Paul says in Galatians 5 that, This is what matters in the Christian life. If you're going to boil everything down and saying, all right, in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything. But what what does count for something, Paul? What matters? Faith working through love. A genuine, real faith in a real Lord Jesus Christ that demonstrates itself with real works and real acts of righteousness. Jesus is our strength not merely as our protective fortress. He is that. But he doesn't just protect us from what we're afraid of. He also is our strength in that he wants to empower and energize our obedience to him in acts of love. As Paul says that he labors according to Jesus's energy or his power that he powerfully works within us. So Jesus came to protect us and to provide for us, yes, but he also came to produce his life in you. Christmas reminds us that our spirituality cannot be merely spiritual. There has to be a real physical element to it or it's not real. So this is, this is our great danger, I think, as Christians in the West is to have all these things that we believe on paper but it never gets enfleshed and our faith actually work itself out in real love. But this is the very meaning of the incarnation. To incarnate means to be embodied in the flesh. So we cannot speak of faith or love merely as ideas. To study in the Bible, merely as ideas to talk about in our community groups, that real faith is like our real Christ, that it sees real needs and gives itself to meet them. So notice that God loved and provided for Naomi, not in general, but specifically in giving her Ruth. And Ruth came to take refuge under the wings of God. And how God provided that to her was her finding refuge under the wings of Boaz. Chapter 3 uses that exact language. And so Boaz was God's answer to her real prayer. And God desires that you and I, our church, by the strength that he supplies, be the real answers to people's real, real prayers with real love. That's a demonstration of real embodied faith.
So just remember this, that the Christian life is him conforming us to his image and Christ did not love us from a distance. Christ didn't save us from a distance. He didn't send a check. He actually came all the way from heaven and humbled himself to becoming one of us. And through real life, real sweat, real nails, real dirt, real ascension, real life, Jesus came and bled and died for his people in order that he might bring us to glory. He really washed our feet, really touched our leprosy, really healed our lameness and gave sight to our eyes. And so this chapter and the Lord Jesus himself call us away from an ethereal faith and an ethereal love this Christmas so that we would actually have an incarnated embodied faith that gives of itself with real, humble, courageous, industrious love that goes beyond the letter of the law in a lavish grace and generosity. And we're not doing those things for God's favor, but because we have come to take refuge under the wings of God. We demonstrate that faith through real love. I want to close with 1 John 4, verse 9 through 12. This is a reminder that we are the body of Christ, and that language is intentional. We are the visible representation of Christ in the world. We are meant to collectively together image Christ to a world that does not know him so that as we love one another and love other people in Jesus' name, they actually see Christ in us and believe that the Father has sent him into the world. This is what John says in 1 John 4. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, incarnated, made visible, shown to us, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. People can't see Jesus this Christmas. But as your faith works itself out in a real love, in a real grace and in a real generosity, they'll see him in us. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, to you, we sing and we pray the words of Psalm 36. How precious is your steadfast love, O God. The children of mankind take refuge in the shadow of your wings. We feast on the abundance of your house, and you give us drink from the river of your delights. For with you is the fountain of life, and in your light do we see light. Help us, Lord, our strength to love others with the love with which you've loved us. Come use us as the answer to people's prayers to you for protection and for provision, for your rescue. We want to embody you and your love and your strength together. We want to live through you and image you to the world, our faith working through love. Produce your life in us, our refuge and strength, for the glory of your name and the good of our neighbor. In Jesus' name, amen.